Today's episode is sponsored by DecibelWines.com. Any of the places we ship to, like New Zealand, Australia, the U.S., uh, you can use the promo code DBPODCAST, just the way it sounds, all caps, and you get a 10% off your first order. That includes the, you know, Testify wine, uh, the 16 Pinot, all the ones that you guys are wanting to get. Unfortunately, we're sold out of that uh, Junta Malbec Nouveau. I try to warn you guys on that one. Hop on it early if you want some. You might be able to find it in a few restaurants and uh, wine shops in New Zealand and the U.S., but didn't even make it to Australia this time, so I'm going to have to make a bit more of that this coming year. Fun wine. I think people are into that crunchy red wine style. Crunchy light red wine. Anyway, the we ship to so many places now. Uh, it's available to ship throughout the EU, all over the EU, uh, Singapore, Japan, Hong Kong, and of course the United Kingdom. Brexiters, no fear. We can still ship you wine. Just visit decibelwines.com. Click Shop Decibel Wines, then choose your flag. It's pretty easy. All right, let's start the show. Okay, today we have on the podcast Chris Harrison, proprietor, owner, a longtime winemaker at Beach House Wines, uh, located in the Giblet Gravels, but also uh, uh, got vineyards out in Tijuana near the ocean there. I've known Chris a really long time, uh, become good friends, I make my Viognier at his winery, and uh, yeah, I wasn't really sure what to expect when he came in to chat, you know, sometimes you just don't know what people are going to be like when... Uh, they get on a microphone, and uh, well, Chris was quite comfortable. <laughs> he came in uh, kind of knowing what he wanted to say, which made my job very easy. Just had a few questions for him, and he sort of told his story, which was an interesting one, and certainly a, a very Kiwi one, a very New Zealand one, uh, which is, um, yeah, it's good to hear those sort of nice success stories. And somebody who emigrated to Hawke's Bay uh, and appreciated how great it was here, so uh, we'll talk to Chris in a minute. I did want to mention some thank yous to some people for a great event we had over the weekend at Little Blackbird in Hastings, the best little cafe here in town. We had Chef Gary Paneer in from Napa Valley and uh, Ben, of course, Ben Cruz, the great chef at Little Blackbird. And man, they did such a great job. We had such a good night. People were dancing. Rock Eye was a DJ and... and Oh, man, all the wines showed great, so thank you to Bryce Edmonds for his Desaria Rosé, uh, Amy Farnsworth for her Amoise wines, uh, Guillaume Thomas for his uh, Maison Noir Cab Franc was looking great, uh, Alex and Hannah for their, uh, Hendry, Alex, Hendry and Hannah for their uh, Viognier from Sorosa wines, which again, all the wines were just looking great. I didn't forget anybody, did I? I think that's all. Uh, great night. Thank you so much to all the people who came. I know it was very much worth it. And, uh, yeah, what a great night. Next time I announce one of these events, I think we'll probably do one over the winter. I really hope uh, everybody hops on it early and, uh, we can even have more people there. It was a, it was a great night. We had, you know, the tables were all full. It was packed and it was just a, f a fun, fun night. So, um, thank you everybody. That was a great, great relief to get through an event like that. You always, uh, leading up to it, feel a little bit uh, weary with so many different people involved, but uh, when you actually pull it off, it uh, feels great, so thank you. Uh, all right, let's talk to Chris, and uh, here we go. There's no way we can screw it up now. Oh, very good. Sure, we could try. So where were you born? What was that again? I suppose it's central to my winemaking philosophy. I was born on top of the Tarot Ranges on the Paiatua track. So for people not from New Zealand, where exactly That's is that? That's sort of right up in the hills. The back of the farm's 100 miles of bush all the way to Wellington. 
Um, and my father was a hill country sheep farmer. So back through the 50s and 60s, he was raising sheep on the on rough country and living on the smell of an oily rag. So is that kind of in that... Well, how close to Martinborough would that be, just to give... Uh, you come sense. north a wee bit, and then it's the first road that runs over the hills to Palmerston North from Palmerston. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of where I was wondering if it was near there. Mm. So... Kind of near the gorge, but... Just south of the gorge. South of the gorge. Yeah. Oh, I think I drive through that way a lot now. They kind of direct... Yeah, it's the, they, I always go that way. Yeah, they direct you that way. And um, I was wondering for a second if it's the one that's even south of that. I've come one time really through when I drove from like... Don't you don't know. want to confuse the saddle road, which is north of the gorge, which is where most of the traffic is. Mm. And then the Paito track is sort of, I don't know, 10 miles further south. Yeah. I think it's been taking me that way for whatever reason. And oh, okay. then it shoots me out, spits me out. Kind right of a cow tree. Yeah. Um, but beautiful country, beautiful part of the country, a bit rainy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I frequently have dreams where I wake up in a cold sweat because I'm trying, I'm walking through a vineyard on the Paito track and it's raining and misty <laughs> and all the grapes are rotten and every second, every, there's only one in 10 vines still alive. It's not really grape growing country. No, New Zealand's a bit weird like that. Like, we were at the Pinot 17 conference, and all the wine writers and psalms were looking at us like, how the hell do you grow? Because it was January, end of January, end of February, and it was like 12 degrees out, sideways rain. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're like, we don't grow wine in Wellington. <laughs> <laughs> just come with us. And then they were in Hawke's Bay like the week, week later, and it was drought and just completely yeah. yellow and brown up here, you know. I went to Massey University, and um, my first job interview was up here making uh, – the apple and pear board it was a job making apple juice concentrate so squeezing apples turning it into juice and and dare i ask what year that was that was 1989 oh it's not too long not so long ago so but i left we let the whole six of us left uh the manor two it's a two-hour drive and we we're all rugged up with our jackets and ties and long shirts and the rain's coming in horizontally and it's gray and wet and i think it's sort of october and we arrive in Hawke's Bay and Hastings, and the tar is melting. Yeah. So, you know, it was, and we are going, whoa, different country. It is. You feel it when you drive up. You get to, you know, pretty, right when you hit the flats before Junction Winery. Yeah, when you're the Takabao Plains. And yeah. all of a sudden it's like, whoa, the clouds split. And Yeah. So that was, that was, I spent two years in Hawke's Bay making apple juice concentrate, took up hang gliding, and, um, Actually, the job interview at Vitals was uh, there were six of us sat down. I sat opposite Murray, and the others sat sort of further down the table. And I was just taking the piss because it was my first job interview. So there was wine. So I poured him wine and asked him about his hobbies. And he was talking about his vineyard at Tikaranga, um, okay. Rongapai, it was called. And um, so I said, Oh, that's interesting. And poured more wine. And we, I got a little bit, I got a glow on. And we went back for the interview at, at the winery about several hours later it was a long lunch and um he sort of started asking me serious questions about you know my future i said well i'll give it two years and if it works out i'll stay and if it doesn't i'm, I'm planning on going to roseworthy and that's the first time i can remember verbalizing the desire yeah yeah and obviously he thought that was a bloody good idea because yeah. he employed me um and two so you're years another of, vital somebody else who came through vital as well uh, I worked for Esk Valley briefly. Esk, okay. uh, that was I went to Roseworthy, met my wife the first week because it was out in the uh, Roseworthy was out in the um, out of Adelaide a couple of hours, so and there was only a few in the class. So I had to move quickly, <laughs> and uh, still paying the price quarter of a century later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was me or Beden Vagnarelli, the Italian stallion. Um, so I won that, that won that battle. I'm not sure what the, what sort of victory it was, but still. <laughs> And uh, yeah, went to Roseworthy, did a postgraduate winemaking course, and then started doing vintages. So around Roseworthy, is there a lot of vineyards? And yeah, there was a vineyard on site which we the students made wine out of. But of course, um, the Barossa Valley is just just beyond it. It Not starts too just far from yeah, it just okay. starts there, and then you can go onto the Clear Valley, or you sure, know, sure. you can go down to Adelaide and into the Adelaide Hills. So there's lots of wineries. There was a lot of wine drunk. Yeah, I, well, I, I didn't doubt that. But. <laughs> I think I, I counted about 3,000 wines consumed in that year. But high quality production, not, you know, just a stone's throw away. So that's yeah, very yeah. helpful. Yeah, and it was. It was great. I think it's really important for a school to... I always wondered how on the South Island... What's the... Is it Lincoln? 
you know, there's a yeah. little bit around there, but it's not like a critical mass. No. So it's a bit tougher, I think, than... Well, we were the last ones to go to Rosewithy when it was out at the at the, um, at the campus in the country. They moved it into, into Adelaide City, mm. part of the university after that, and they got rid of the, the winery. Mm. It was a brilliant winery. I went back a wee while later, uh, 25 years later, and they'd turned it into a grain sorting Yeah. Thing. So now it's more like kind of Auckland Uni with more lab tech, yeah, yeah. techy. Yeah, yeah. That was a great year. What, I already uh, had a degree. So that was early 90s then? Yeah, yeah that was 91. 91? Yeah, 1991. Yeah. And then, yeah, post that, I went and did vintages here and overseas, and one of them was at Esk Valley. And I always thought, I always wanted to come back to Hawke's Bay, but I eventually got a job working for Montana in Marlborough because I was a food, I did food technology, so old mm. um, Peter Hubshire was um, a food techie, and he thought I was what it what it uh, looked like I was a, a likely candidate but I didn't enjoy that it was too corporate everyone had small pigeonholes and everyone was watching their back and you know yeah, yeah it wasn't it already wasn't, back then too yeah, yeah yeah it was and it wasn't the, and the guys on the floor weren't really into winemaking they were just factory they, they workers they were just factory workers yeah they were into yeah. into robbing banks and, yeah. <laughs> and doing deals yeah, yeah. So, um, but it was all pretty full on Marlboro savvy back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, it was. Oh, yeah, and you know, it was um, you know five hundred thousand liter tanks, and they used to have a, a scrapes scrape surface heat exchanger that they'd pump the wine out of the fermenter, through the scrapes scrape surface heat exchanger, and then back into the tank. And if you got a few bubbles in it, you know, imagine putting um, a few bubbles in a five hundred thousand liter fermenter. Um, so they didn't want to do that. No. So they'd so they'd they'd bleed it on with water, and then they'd they'd go uh, wait, taste off the wine, and then they'd flick it over to the tank, and then they put their ear against the tank, listening for their little bub blub blub. Yeah. And if they heard a little blub blub, they ran because you'd all of a sudden get thirty thousand liters of wine erupting out of the top of the tank in a big, yeah. you know, mushroom cloud. It doesn't take much on those no the big kinetics exactly big giant tanks. Um, but it was. I guess the boom had started fully on by then for Marlboro Sav and oh yeah definitely and what what else were they producing there then um, oh they were making a bit of everything they were still uh, had a bit of a shotgun approach so they were making a bit of everything but so there yeah. was like they were trying Cab Sav and yeah yeah too. yeah still had yeah. Cab Sav down there and, and um, Monty and and I don't think there was much Syrah grown but you know Chardonnay and Riesling and yeah basically the whole Gambit, trying it all but, out, yeah. yeah, but obviously the save took over. So then I got I uh, worked for Montana for a vintage, didn't enjoy it, and then got a job in a little brewery, a little boutique brewery down there. Oh, it's start, the picture's starting to come together yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Exactly. So I did that for a year, and then thought should, I looked at the books and thought this is the way to do it. You can make beer today and sell it six weeks later. Yeah. And I always wanted to um, have a, a winery, but I could see myself planting grapes today and six years later getting some money out of it so I was trying to figure out how to make them both work and obviously a little brewery is um has got all the gear you need to make wine pretty mm, much yep in fact you have to be cleaner in a brewery yeah yeah well it's actually it is actually quite a good um you know a good discipline brewing mm. beer to ta yeah. ta going from brewing beer to making wine is quite good because you're sterilizing all your tanks routinely yeah um so yeah I came up to Hawke's Bay um, and built a brewery in 1994. That's how long that place has been there? Yeah, yeah, 22 years I had it. How many brewers have you worked with in there over the well, years? Well, initially I did it myself. Yeah. Um, and then I started employing um, brewers. Um, Chris O'Leary was my first serious one. He went on to Emerson's Brewery, and I think he's still running Emerson's Brewery down in... That's what favorite Pilsner in New yeah. Zealand. Yeah, well, he actually makes a very nice Pilsner. Um, and he actually started up his own... Uh, Limburg breweries when he while he was working for me I sort of tried to encourage him to you know mm. follow his dreams um, but it was a bit too premature if he for was the doing boom, yeah. yeah for the boom he was making wit beers and vice beers and you know it was over everybody's head wise and box yeah yeah it was it was before the time I mean we we were making beer we'd make cast condition ales and I think drive the spigot on the bar and early days for even the US for that kind yeah. of stuff I mean I can remember Hogarden when I lived in Belgium in 1997 was like obviously very popular there, but it wasn't in the U.S. yet. Neither was Stella, for that matter. Yeah. And then like two, three years later, so it wasn't all two, the two thousands really till the wit beer and the. I mean, there were kind of it was a few around, but it wasn't like a thing. Yeah. You know, where American breweries were doing it, so. 
as I said, we we made some cask conditioned ales, little fifty liter cask, mm-hmm. and we you know we'd dry hop it and and drive the spigot and pour sort of flat beer, just like in England, um, and we'd make fifty liters and sell it over you know two weeks. Two and there weeks. was there people into that or oh a little bit. There were a few you know um, adventurous souls. I mean, our market was the thinking man's beer drinker to begin with, but they were still drinking lager draft dark. Sure, you know, sure, uh, sure. slightly. You know, it was, but we had a bit more flavour. It was one hundred percent malt. And we we had a, a vice beer, a crystal vice. And was that always the? I've, I've never thought that the roosters beers were over hopped or anything. You know, no, you no, occasionally well, come out with something funky, but I always liked the yeah. fact that they were kind of malty and drink, really yeah. drinkable. Yeah, I mean, um, we were we were doing it twenty five years ago, twenty five years ago, and so you, as I said, we did the hoppy things on, on a very small scale, and no one, and everyone thought this is weird and we don't like it. Yeah. Um, and and the legacy going forward, it's hard. You create a market and then you start trying to change it up, and people people um, are slow to adopt. Basically, mm. in the beginning, it was all draft, and then um, by the time we finished, people were drinking lagers and IPAs. So you know, went from draft beer, sort of amber, four point four percent alcohol, tasteless stuff, through to lager with a bit more hops, and then to IPAs, and then yeah, they were prepared to try a few mm. different things now. Yeah, I've just never found them to be like over the top. I've always found no, them no. to be just no, solid, that's fair good comment. drinking beer, you know, fair which comment. is good because uh, it, it gets a little crazy. Yeah. So we, we basically kicked off the winemaking in 1996. So we had the start of the brewery in 94, and then obviously in the wintertime when beer sales drop a wee bit, there's a fermenter looking at you, so you make some wine. And my folks moved up in 96 because my father helped me, build, helped me build the brewery, and so... Um, He'd leave Palmerston in the rain and come up here for a winter in the wintertime and it would be a beautiful sunny <laughs> day, you know, frosty morning, blue sky days. And then he'd go back for the weekends to get rain on and he did that for three or four months. Oh, three, yeah, three or four months. And then sold the farm and moved up here and bought a bit of land out by the sea. Hmm. And yeah, we and started what did you guys, Were you, when you first started, were you buying fruit or was that already some of your... Oh, uh, we ideas? did, yeah. Oh, Bruce Ellingham had, some, had a vineyard in Nahidi Road and he was a friend so he bought some fruit in from him. But um, we basically looked around. It was all about site selection, winemaking. If you get a good site, then winemaking 101, site selection. Mm. You know, if you get a good site, then everything falls in place but sure. behind that. So we, got, we looked at the beach for Chardonnay because obviously Clearview was doing some pretty stellar things there. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately, um, uh, 1999, my wife and I bought that place in Mary Road where the winery is now. Um, which is next to Alan Limmer, you know, Stonecroft, so for the Syrahs and the Reds. Yeah, and um, that's what's out there. And you, when did you put in Montepulciano? Yeah, 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 we've got Montepulciano. Um, so uh, we've got a bit of a fruit salad. It's we're well, only it's good, s- it keeps it interesting. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're um, smalls and mostly, dom- well, all domestic, so you've got to make a, a reasonable diversity of wine to keep everyone happy. Yeah. We got that tasting room out at the beach. Yeah, That's yeah, we got the straw bell cellar door. Yeah. Uh, so my old man came up in '96, and then um, and we started making wine, and we started planting grapes. And my father always wanted to build a Watland daub or rammed earth structure, so he built a straw bale cellar door for us, and that opened in 2000. And yeah, we basically started working with all these different grapes we planted, and trying to figure out which which grapes did. Which, which created which wine and and under what the variation was from year to year. So, so have you pulled or what? Uh, I so pulled what some you, stuff out. Yeah, yeah. We pulled out a bit of Merlot and planted some more Chardonnay because Chardonnay became our strong. And that was out in the in the near the ocean or in Tijuana. Oh, actually, yeah. I think my father planted some Merlot out of the beach, so we pulled that out pretty quickly. So out of the beach, we got the sea breeze, so you got the nice cooling influence. Um, so we planted Chardonnay, Chardonnay and Riesling, and a little bit of Cavertz. And some savvy. Um, and then on the Gimlet Gravels, we planted uh, initially Cabernet and Merlot because, you know, Bordeaux. Sure. And then we planted some more Merlot because that, um, that was the variety of the moment. Um, and then we planted some Montepulciano, Cabernet Franc, um, and Malbec. And then Syrah was the last one off the rack because the people were just starting to talk about it back then. We actually planted it on its own roots initially. 
Um, and we've actually gone through and pulled half of it out and replanted it on rootstock. But it was doing wonderful things on its own roots until the phylloxera <laughs> sure. discovered it. <coughs> that'll that'll, that'll, that'll change your slow change. you down, yeah. So have you had, uh, just skipping ahead a bit, have you had issues with Syrah like everybody else is in a bit mm. of a panic the last few years? And what have you seen? Yeah, well, they, they talk about it um, having a, a finite ripening period. And once it gets to the end of that, it's more about concentration. You know, the, yeah. you get the sort of shriveling of the bunch. and Yeah, the half full shopping bag. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Half full shopping bag. The uh, dimples. Dib- dib- dibbled scrotum. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> dibbled golf ball. Yeah. So that's, and that's where you get the concentration. So yeah, in the last couple of years, three years pretty much, the rains come. And as soon as the rain comes, uh, it's got to, it's, everything's got to dry up for it to sort of, you know, start that process again. And we mm. haven't, they haven't had that opportunity. So it gets to sort of 20 bricks and that, if you're lucky, and that's it. But it always had, uh, you know, and this is something I can't speak of as long of experience, but I have like 10 years of being around, but I probably just wasn't as experienced as say you would be mm. for the last 10 years. And Syrah to me, it seemed like, it kind of started getting bigger and more important in like 05, 06, 07. Yeah, we made some really great, great, great Syrahs all the way through to 14, really. 13, so, 14, definitely. But every year I've been here, even like the, even maybe 13 might be the exception. We've always gotten rain in March, you know, but maybe just, no, I mean, not, not, not as two specific. cyclones. It's yeah, yeah. It's the, it's, like, the, it's the volume too, of course. You can get a bit yeah. of rain, you know, 10 mils, but as soon as you get uh, maybe. Uh, 25 mils at the you know towards the end of March just when you're thinking about when the Syrah is sitting at 19 bricks mm. it just tends to stall yeah so. I'm taking the very challenging years out of it 11 12 17 just yeah put those to the side yeah I mean we got some rain in 14 we got some rain I in made 10. a trophy winning, winning Syrah in 14 yeah 14 got, was a great uh, year yeah yeah oh great you know, year for Syrah 10 got was a, a great year and got an Air New a, Zealand trophy for my Syrah wow yeah woo <laughs> well now you can't even get that anymore right no no it's a it's a bygone thing i got that sitting on my shelf i'm curious to see how that's all gonna shake out oh uh, i think it will yeah it'll um, just take people a little while to get their heads around i just yeah. I, maybe i'm just uh misreading it because i've never won one <laughs> but uh i always thought that air, you know the fact that it was air new zealand and it was the biggest award show in the in the country that there was some follow through into actually Air New Zealand and it had some clout with it with that name. Yeah. And that, you know, if it was on a, a shelf somewhere and it said that. In the it, world, I suppose. Possibly. Well, even in, in the, absolutely in the world, but also mm. with certainly within New Zealand. Oh, definitely within New Zealand. And yeah, so no, if you. The, I don't, I'm curious to see how this, what is it? The wine of the year or something? New Zealand wine of the year. Wine of the year. So I'm curious to see how that translates to the consumer and. Yeah, I'm sure they'll sort it out, but yeah, it, it's taken the gloss off it definitely. They need a, I don't know who would be the other glossy sponsor then. Oh, I see. Oh, you're talking about a sponsor, yeah. Pantera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, interesting. The wine industry sort of entered a more commercial phase, I suppose. It's not. It's it's no longer the great adventurer. Like when I started, I was hang gliding, and, yeah. and most of the winemakers in, in Hawke's Bay were hang glider pilots. You know, mm. you had to be crazy enough to run off a cliff to get into the wine industry yeah. in New Zealand. Well, that was kind of going to be one of my questions going back to what you said when you set up your winery was like, you know, forget about health and safety. I don't even approach that, but just even like, you know, what was required for building permits and all that. Was it pretty easy to do, you know? Uh, you've got a. My father worked for the council. He was a councillor. He didn't oh, work for the. He was a councillor. He went and down in the Manor too, and it gave him a bit of a blasé, uh, blasé fair approach to it. Um, you find out what you go and talk to them and say what what do you, what can I do and what can't I do, and then you just work within what they're yeah. within the parameters. If you go and say, look, I want to do this, this, and this, and then they say, well, this is what you're going to need. Bang, bang, bang. So you want to know what they're going to say before you say. Yep. You know, so we built a winery, but it's more of a storage shed. There's no cellar or tastings there at, at Mary Road. Um, you know, we don't have people coming on site. So it was actually reasonably simple. All our wastewater we take off site. You know, all those problems we try, you just think of a solution that makes it as simple as possible for so you. So that you don't have to deal with them. They don't much. have to deal with it, yeah. yeah. But saying that, we've got issues now with water. They're talking about Mary Road. They've remodeled the aquifer and decided yeah. that we were a direct take and. Hot topic for you, I yeah, guess. Well, they're talking about turning your water off for the month of February, which might be fun. 
Yeah. That'll be interesting. Yeah. Oh, there's other. Again, there's solutions. Big tanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <I> <laughs> Million liter tanks, So, which, yeah, I've already priced those out, but just so I can sleep at night. But, yeah, hopefully it won't come to that. Yeah. What are you... What's then? Nothing's actually going to happen until the new year, right? When they yeah, it's, uh, they they expire um, middle of two thousand nineteen, and then yeah, I think they'll give temporary consent. I don't think they'll expect you to suddenly have a solution overnight. So yeah, but, but then you think it'll be like you get a you get this one tank or whatever, or you can only draw off storage. Well, actually, I, again, my the winery at Mary Road isn't that big. Yeah. You know, for me, it's I can put in these. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Brent Lynn's got a frost fighting tank, and it's basically corrugated iron walls, and a liner, and a and a um, and a shade cloth cover on the top. And he put that in for about twenty five thousand for six hundred thousand liters. So you know, maybe I'm looking maybe forty thousand dollars for a million liter. It's basically a dam above ground. Yeah. 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 And that would cover me for the month of February. But they might then decide that, no, that's not long enough or something. But, yeah. I mean, and it'll take up a lot of space. I mean, that's a solution for me because my vineyard at Mary Road's not that big. And actually, I've got a bit of land which I didn't plant. I was still wondering what to do with it. Yeah. And for me, because I've got the winery there and the wines that I'm making are, they're like my, they're the premium ones that I'm making to get the awards to do the marketing. Mm. You know, the volume ones I get off growers, you know, yep, yep. You know the Pinot Gris and a bit extra Chardonnay and stuff. So it's the the things I'm looking after so I can put the work in and get yeah, the results. Yeah, the premium Gibbet Gravel stuff. Yeah, so yeah. That's the scary part is that it is the Gibbet Gravels and yeah. it's like the most premium. And, but well, then you've got these guys uh, for working for the council that sit down with a bit of paper and say, well, how much money do they make out of grapes? And the reality is wineries price what they make out of their vineyards and what they get from their growers you know, at cost, pretty much. You know, they factor in a, in a grape grower's salary, but that's it. So they're not actually paying uh, much, you know, much above that. Because, no, no, yeah. And so when when um, a Boffin looks at apples, where they're you know they're making the total profit of an apple once it leaves the site and goes through packhouse, of course. But um, whereas with wine, the price of the fruit leaving the vineyard isn't very high. No, you're not. making two hundred dollars a hectare. Why would they bother? Yeah. But then the reality is, you're putting it into a bottle of wine. You can possibly sell for 35 50 bucks so yeah and that's where you make your profit and they hadn't factored that one in it's a bit of a worry yeah so well i guess going back well the one thing i was thinking was when you were saying that is that probably to the novice or somebody who isn't in the wine industry you wouldn't realize how much water how much water is used in the vineyard compared to the wine. You think, oh, this busy, t-, you know, you see people using working yeah. in the winery, you see this yeah. water going down the drain or cleaning and stuff like that. Yeah, it's nothing much at all. It's, <laughs> maybe, it's two, two, liters per, two or three liters per every liter of wine produced, which, you know. But then on the vineyard side, if you Well, actually, we're on the Gimlet Gravels, which is, you know, 10, well, I'm not sure how deep it is, but the water table's down about 13 meters. So you've got 13 meters of gravel. So the vines, they're not going to get their taproot down to that. Well, they may do eventually. But um, you've basically got to give them all the water they need. Um, and it obviously doesn't hang around long. And, and that's why you're on the Gimlet Gravels. So when it does rain, it, the water disappears and you're not getting too much uptake of water and your grape splitting and things. Yeah, you know, yeah so. it's great for that. So I would say that to me for the Gimlet Gravels is the big difference is, you know, in like 17, the, I loved my Malbec from that year because I think it just – we, it hit ripening at the right time, but when it got those heavy rains, it just yeah. it didn't affect it. It didn't burst the berries, exactly what you're saying. Yeah, we're making, um, we're, fil- oh, we're filtering some reds this morning from 17, and, you know, 17 was a challenging vintage, but those wines are a little less alcoholic, mm. but they've still got the, the texture and... and um, aromatics. And, and aromatics, yeah. and, and, and the tannins are nice and soft, and, and they're a great drink. You know, they're not huge that you know you get halfway through the bottle and think well that's that's knocked me on my ass i'll wait till tomorrow to finish the bottle off yeah they're more of a um elegant um but they're still a great wine they're an enjoyable drink it was a hot year you know? yeah it was a hot year yeah it just and they're and they're more bordeaux-esque they're more 12 and a half percent instead of 14 and a half percent alcohols yeah which is you know a lot of bordeaux's were always 12 and a half mm. so yeah no they, they i'm quite pleased what's your uh do you have a favorite 
from 17. Or do you just have, I have a favorite? Our like, favorite red off the Gimmick Gravels would be my Cabernet Franc. Yeah, that yeah. seems to be. Yeah, that's a, that's no a seamless wine. Yeah. It's it, a complete wine. It yeah. is a complete wine, yeah. yeah. It has everything going on. And when I've you, drank enough of them. <laughs> <laughs> and it goes, on, it goes on forever. You know, yeah. it, it basically, it's nice, soft tannins. It's got a, a backbone that just runs straight and true for a long, long time. And fairly straightforward to make. You know, no huge headaches with that wine? Or? Um, oh, it's a red wine. Off the It's reasonably robust, I suppose. It's not in the vineyard. It's like Merlot in the vineyard, you know, if you're when it comes to sort of durability. Mm. Cabernet's probably a little, well, a little bit more durable in the vineyard. Than Cabernet Sauvignon. Cabernet Sauvignon, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's actually quite a nice variety because it does ripen earlier. It's yeah. sort of Merlot and then Cabernet Franc. They're not far behind each other. It's not far behind the Merlot, so it's reasonably early. Uh, whereas Cabernet Sauvignon, you're still waiting. Let it hang. Yeah, Montepulciano, you don't even think about it till vintage is over. Go and have a look. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I re- realized that um, making some Viognier over at your place is like all of a sudden yeah. I thought everything was done and it's like, all the machines are on. I'm like, what the heck? Oh, we just picked Montepulciano. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. It's May, you know, or whatever. Yeah, it yeah. You know, it is very late. Uh, but we've had some success with that too. But it's funny how that grape, you, you know, you think like, okay, well, it's from maybe this hot part of Italy or something that it needs the heat or at least needs the time. Is like, mm. It can go either way where Syrah, it's like it just has this tight window that it needs all this heat in the middle and it's you're not going to benefit much from hanging serile till may you know i mean I've seen oh, the flavors done. still develop i mean even last year we got to sort of 19 and a half bricks and i think oh here we go again and i i kept tasting it and the flavors did develop and it sort of crept forward a little bit mm-hmm. you know uh, but your montepulciano you sort of we we throw half the fruit on the ground to begin with because the bunches are huge yeah and then um it always comes in with good acid. You know, you're looking at low, whereas Cab Franc and Cabernet, our pHs are 3.7, 3.8. Yeah. The old Monty will come in with. Uh, this is a finished wine. The Monty will produce a wine with 3.4, 3.5 pH <coughs> uh, acid. Mm. A pH. And I think that's why it's mm. sometimes a great table wine. And yeah. Well, and, uh, at and the and moment, the 2015, we got a gold for it at the local show. Um, it's the acid. And the tannin just worked like a, a foil and a knife edge, mm. not quite, not a, a blunt knife edge, yeah. and it sort of just cuts through, um, you know, heavy pastas and fatty ducks, you know, a rich rich meal, and just sort of cleanses the palate with a nice red wine. And when did you plant Monty? A friend of mine, Frank Foreman, actually got um, grafted the sum up for me. Um, he had there was a, a few bays at Morton Estate. Um, the Morton State Winery up at uh, Kerry, um, yeah, down that way, yeah, down that way, <laughs> and um, and so he, yeah, it was too too cold and too fertile, so they you know, they just threw it into their Merlot. It was they thought it was ugly, but um, he he um, got some sign wood and grafted them up for us and presented them to us in about uh, two thousand and one, I think, and said I think these will grow well on the Gimmick Gravels, and yeah, you need to be on the Gimmick Gravels to get them to work. And yeah, they, anybody else doing Montepulciano? Yeah, there's a few. Um, Trinity Hill, I think they had a lot. Um, I think they had issues. They pulled it out, but they replanted some. I think they make a. I think they crop it a little bit heavier, and they make more of a pasta wine. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as I said, we we thinned it all out, and we got a trophy at the Brigado in 2007. That was our first trophy for our Monty for the other Reds. So you saw the light and then you said, oh, I might be on to something finally. Yeah, well, you need, and it's also a point of difference when everyone else has got the same varieties. If you go to a tasting, then you've got something different to taste and yeah. everyone gets excited. And also the cellar door vehicle is always good because they're, yeah, yeah, definitely. You can do these small lots. I mean, shit, you're looking at Clearview down the road. That yeah, have 27. <laughs> they make a new wine, I think, for every year they've been in production. Yeah. So every year. So by the time they've been in production 50 years, they'll make 50 different, 50 different wines, which will be a bit But, you know, you can do that if you got a tasting room. You can make two barrels yeah. or something. And yeah, exactly. It doesn't piss off your distributor or something. They're like, oh, you got another wine? You know? Yeah, yeah. Now, we've got the same going on for things like Amonti and for our – we make some sweet wines every now, every 10 years when the conditions are right and there's a poor grower with – Botrytis fruit that you can't sell. We go and say, oh, there, there, it'll be all right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you squeeze the shit out of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know. Well, it has to, it only happens. We made one in 2009 and then one in two, we made two in 2009 and then two in 2016. So it was just those vintages where you get a nice dry May. So yeah. Everything can exactly. recover. Yeah. 
Hmm. So uh, I think we stopped somewhere along the history there, but uh, oh, the whole philosophy behind. I think the uh, I'm a why maker that actually was a child uh, or a young man with a backpack to his name that said I'm going to get into the wine industry, hmm. and I, I proceeded to do it. I had to build a brewery to get to achieve my goals, <laughs> but it's funny about the wine industry. It seems like everybody's got like a side gig to. Well, that, those six eat. years without any income is you know yeah. you know it's hard. It's tough. Tough nut. And then even once you've started making wine, you've got to fill your pipeline. You know, you've got to fill the tanks yeah. and then you've got to put them in bottles and then you've got to fill up the warehouse and then you've got to have wine that's out in, out in the system sitting on a shelf somewhere waiting to be paid for. So mm. it's it's a big pipeline. The actual vineyard, it's sort of like a uh, pyramid in reverse. The, you know, the, the initial cost, you think, this is what it's going to cost, but then they just it just keeps expanding as you go out and, and expand. Yeah. Yeah, and I see it. I don't have a vineyard either. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I can see the just like I don't know how I could do it, but I think that's a really big reason why I relate to you. And you know, and I've always been you know had a friendly relationship with you. As you come, you know, though you own a winery and had a brewery and you yeah. have a successful brand, is that you're a working man's winemaker. Like you're not somebody yeah. who stepped into it at, with like ten million dollars, a silver spoon, yeah, exactly. And bought a vineyard exactly. and like we're going to start this brand. It's yeah, like yeah. no, you worked your ass <laughs> off to. To make it happen. You know? Well, that's right. I mean, there's wineries where literally they've got millions of dollars and they say, well, well we've made our money out of waste waste removal. Let's yeah. put some money into, we want to have something fun to do. So they invest, you know, $100 million in a little yeah. winery just for the just weekend. Little just for the weekends, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, that's, and a lot of people were either, you know, lawyers or worked in finance and they, they, they got sick of it and said, well, we've got some money. Let's go live the lifestyle. And they threw it at winemaking. Yeah. Whereas I sort of did it from the other direction where I sort of worked from the bottom up. And the advantage for me was my father being a hill country sheep farmer, you know. So instead of having a weekly view, most people, fathers, or they get paid weekly. Yeah. Whereas my father got paid two years down the line and you had to have a vision for 10 years down the line because you frequently that pay wasn't very big you, know? yeah, yeah. you had to wait for the you know for I'm, the starting, sheep. I'm starting to understand those economics a lot. yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly so so the uh, you know the sheep you, you got your your sheep and you sold them a, a year later and and the, and then six months later you went to see the bank manager and all the intricacies of the, your finances were explained and he said no you hadn't actually made any money yeah, because yeah. it all goes to the tax man or not the tax man to the bank or you actually had to depreciate a whole lot of things so you may have had a little bit of cash to survive but it actually cost you money um and so that was quite handy you know and also 1956 i'm not sure if that was the year my grandfather was a farmer and he'd shorn the lambs at christmas time in the Manawatu. and um on christmas eve it, uh, a storm came through and all the lambs walked up into the into a valley it snowed on christmas eve in new zealand which is un very unusual this what? Of summer. yeah and you know he lost um 60 of his income for the year shit. so you know and you say shit but it, the same thing happens with yeah. Hail, the frost, yeah. Yeah, rain at harvest. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm thinking to uh, you know the frost in 2004. Yeah, uh, yeah, we had three, two, four. Yeah, there was one and eight as well. Yeah, and and the three four vintage. Yeah, yeah. where that basically thousand feet of cold air came up from the south and wiped out Hawkes Bay. So yeah, have a bit of a holiday. Yeah, <laughs> but you still got to spray the vineyards. Yeah. So you need to have that. You know, you need to be able to appreciate those things and because my father and my grandfather had to deal with it i don't find it too stressful and i also don't spend any money that i don't have and i don't do it unless i can see how to make money out of it yeah yeah so the weakness the other the probably the the negative side of that coin is i'm probably a little bit too pragmatic so when it comes to the marketing and the dream and the image and the conveying the romantic picture that everyone buys into when they want to buy a bottle of wine and say oh isn't it wonderful yeah i'm probably not i'm a bit too pragmatic <laughs> and laconic and and uh, a grumpy old bastard when it comes to that oh you come off friendly enough to me. yeah oh, yeah you've you always do. been nice to me but yeah yeah but i about everybody else <laughs> <laughs> oh no, i i can talk mm. there's a bit of irish in my background well speaking of that when you know you're talking about your grandfather now when did you know, you're obviously not Māori, so when did your your family our get family to New arrive? Yeah, um, let's see. I didn't realize it went even back that far. Oh no, my grandfather's grandfather. So we're um, we went and had a look at on both sides of the family. Actually, we went down to Christchurch and had a look at my 
um, my great great grandfather's house in Christchurch. Mm-hmm. It was one of these little houses that survived, it survived the earthquake. Was it was made in 1860 yeah. out of um, Totra, and <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's a it's a uh, little dog box really. But um, we wandered around because they were doing it up. Um, so yeah, no, we've been around for a while. My grandfather was um, worked in the Wairarapa. He was you know he shot rabbits to put and got the ears with an old 22 that I inherited at one stage. Um, and, he, and he got the the bounty for the years he collected, and that's where he got the money to buy my grandmother a you know engagement ring, you know. So that's it was crazy. it was hard, hard you know. <laughs> and he you know he was when he when I remember him on the farm as a child, he would be straightening the nails. You know, you'd pull nails out and you'd straighten them so you could use them again. Yeah. You didn't throw those away. Well, I think that's what's inherently interesting about Kiwis, and not you know I'm a resident of New Zealand. I have my own story but for kiwis what's interesting is somebody and i I truly believe you carry this in your dna and in we say our blood but i think it's more in your dna and everything but that somebody somebody not that too many generations away from you got on a boat and went around the world and some serious shit to get here yeah they're adventurous and then somebody even closer a generation might even be father but Mm. definitely grandfather Sat through some hell of a t- tough seasons in New Zealand, you know, up, you know, alone, abandoned. Whether it was one family on a farmhouse and the next family yeah, yeah, was exactly. a long way away, and you got through winter, and you, yeah, shot rabbits to see, you know, survive, to, yeah, do exactly. whatever you had to do to to, to survive. Yeah, there was no power, there was no yeah. running water, there was no dishwashers, and yeah, that, which yeah. there wasn't even that much of a community like no, outside right. of like you know these these. Yeah, my great great grandfather had a farm up the Mara, which is on the Wairarapa. It's in the middle of nowhere. If you want to find out where the Mara is, and we drove out there as as I was a child, and when I was a child, and my father told us stories about people that on the road, you know, um, that guy got his. There was a guy that lived there, and he was out felling a tree, and he got his hand caught when the in the tree when it fell, so he had to chop it off with an axe. Because there was no one there, no. and and then the, the you know there were several wives that went crazy, and and uh, you know and and life was yeah lots of suicides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just your, and uh, brutal that, brutal existence. But it no. still affects the uh, you know the culture today, and that it's you well. Know, my that. sister's an epidemiologist, so and she was talking. I was talking to last night actually, and she was saying that there's certain things that happen in your life which actually affect your DNA. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they actually affect the way you're genetically. Stress and well, yeah, stress, yeah. and um, you know, there was, she was talking about in the Netherlands there was a, a, a famine, and and all the all the people that were born in the Netherlands during the famine were distinctly different from the people that were born on either side of it. Obviously, the um, the you know the children that were born in concentration camps their dna and their um is different and the way they they process anxiety is different you know they're absolutely the way you live your life and the way people live their lives actually affects um, generations down yeah well, they're, they're starting to see all that with like mice and yeah, you know, yeah. like let alone why wouldn't a more complex system like a human yeah well we're, humans are things. probably the ultimate one because we do adapt to a different environment mm-hmm. and that's how we won the battle Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We're and it's a bit, and there's a lot of negatives right. too with this. Actually, the, the main one she was talking about was the um, certain drugs, you know, that, that will affect several generations of children, you know. Traumatized, yeah. Well, cause, because it affects the DNA. You know, yeah. they, they're talking about these pea, cho- pea children where the mother yeah. smoke uh, consuming pea and then she's produced a child and that child. Her embryos are already in. You know, she's already yeah, got yeah. she's already got yeah. them in there. So you're talking three. Uh, you know, and then even that child's child will be affected because her genetic material has been affected. So you know. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> so yeah. I just a, hope my daughter's okay. <laughs> for all my decisions in my teens and twenties. Yeah, so. yeah. I know this well. Hopefully, she'll marry a, a genetically a purebred, a purebred exactly, <laughs> and and they'll straighten her out. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I think she's doing all right. She's living the, the good Kiwi life right now, so maybe that's part of it too. Is there's, oh, a, there's a correction? Yeah. That's right. Uh, for my uh, my hard living in in Philly and New York back in the day, but um, well, so you've sold the brewery. Sold the brewery, yeah. So uh, it's all about the dream, I suppose. Yeah. And the trick was we were going to have the brewery for five years and then sell it and have a debt free winery, 
I had children and a wife that decided she was going to become a 50s housewife. Don't listen to this, we don't. And, uh, and, so, and the children went to private schools. And so 22 years later, we sold the brewery. Yeah. Um, and so we've got a debt-free, debt-free winery. Great. Full pipeline. One of the one of the few. Yeah, yeah. Full pipeline. <laughs> We've got money in the bank to pay for fruit in the future, and the warehouse is full and all paid for. And we bought a yacht. You know. Oh, well, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you need a, a yacht. something to play around with. Yeah. Enjoy your life a little bit. You can't. Yeah, well, exactly. You're, well, you're not. What was it? Uh, hand gliding anymore? So I've still got it, but yeah. nuts, but old. <laughs> Technology has come yeah. a long way. Uh, yeah, I don't bend. I don't flex. I think that's one of the things about age is if you take a child. A child's arm and bend it till it breaks. They get a thing called a green uh, green stick fracture. You know, mm. it, it bends like a green twig until yeah. it breaks. Yeah. You take my arm and you bend it a fraction, and it and it, it fractures, snaps. fractures, it yeah. snaps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. shatters. So mm. yeah, no, you need that bounce to be able to hang glide. So that's good. Then you're not. You've got plenty to do. I was going to say, you've had a, the brewery and the winery. You got rid of the brewery devils. You know, boredom is a devil's playground. Oh, you're not yeah, bored. Yeah. No, no, no. Well, the children have left home, but then, of course, the par- the parents take up time because they need looking after because they're getting sure unwell. That's so, anyway. That's life. That's life. Yeah. So, well, I don't know. Anything else you want to drop yeah. in? I think probably the, the message, if there was one, is that all you need is the idea. Yeah. You know, um, people say, you know, I want to have a winery. Wouldn't it be nice? Well, if, if that's what you want. All you need to do is, I, I agree 100%, follow yeah. follow that idea. I think uh, sometimes you know you, when you're doing long days of work, you think in your head like I don't know. I'll hear like a comedian on a yeah. podcast, or I'll hear more like one of my favorite bands, and I'll think like, well, man, I could have done that. Like that would have been interesting. If I've Black actually, I've actually, um, I had an uh, epiphany once. I'll tell you, it's that it's called my toilet brush story. Okay, I apologize, apologies to all of my friends that have already heard this a hundred times, but I was sitting. Um, a friend of mine said to me. Um, Chris, you always sort of say you're going to do something and then you do it. You know, I'd had the brewery for a while at the stage and I was doing other things. And uh, I thought, yeah, there's no secret to that. So I was sitting in the staff toilet at Roosters one day (laughs) contemplating the mysteries of of this. this. And I thought, well, as you do, you you know, (laughs) having a quiet moment. And I was thinking, well, it's all about just having an idea of visualizing positive visualization yeah you know you sort of sit down and you think well i'd like to have a a winery you know and you picture yourself at the long table with the, all the wine in the underground cellar and the and the vineyard and the grandchildren running around and the and the life that you're going to have and you sort of daydream about it and fill it out with details about you know where it's going to be and and then you sort of forget about it and then as you go through life because you've got this picture in your mind somewhere, opportunities present themselves. You know, you're driving along and you see a little flash of silver, and you're like, "Oh, it's a bit of stainless steel." Mm. And it's oh, it turns out it's a, a ten thousand liter tank sitting in, under a hedge somewhere that an orchardist was using to irrigate some trees when they were young. It doesn't need it anymore. So you go and see him and say, "Oh, that tank, do you need that anymore?" And he says, "No, no, don't need that anymore." And I say, oh, "I'll give you five hundred dollars for it." And so. All of a sudden, you've got a um, fifteen thousand dollar tank for five hundred bucks because mm. you've had the vision of where you want to be in your mind, and the opportunity presents itself. Absolutely, it's all about positive visualization. So I said, "Yeah, I'm a great believer in positive visualization." So I got up from the toilet and looked down. Thought, "Oh, I must get a toilet brush." So that was the first thought that went through my head <laughs> post epiphany. So I walk out of the staff toilet at Roosters. I walk across the courtyard. And as I walk into the cafe, you know, you can visualize what I'm, ta- what I'm talking yeah. about. You've been there. The back door was open and the two front doors were open. And it was a beautiful sunny day, you know. And there in the middle of the road was a... Toilet brush? Toilet brush. Fucking... <laughs> 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 so, I, so I went out there, had a little chuckle, picked it up. Yeah. But the, the, it's not as though there was a divine intervention. It was because if I hadn't, the point is, if I hadn't had the thought, I wouldn't yeah, have seen it. Absolutely. And yeah. if I had, had had seen it, all I would have seen was rubbish. Yeah, yeah. But because I had 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 the thought, yeah, then the opportunity presented itself. All that for sitting down and taking a shit. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's <laughs> my toilet brush story, and that applies to everything. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, yeah. I, th- I think um, that. Well, the other thing I was going to say was like, if you did want to, like, you can't have these dreams about saying. 
well, I could have been a singer, or I could have been a comedian, or I could have yeah. been this, or I could have been a farmer. I could well, you would have done it if you you know because you would have thought it. And yeah, you would have said I want to do that. I've and never then, thought about being a singer. I don't exactly, know if I can sing. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, whatever the job is, you know, yeah, you yeah. may have thought earlier in your life, like, and then you look back on it and go, well, why didn't I do that? And you go, well, because you didn't think that you wanted to do it because you yeah, obviously did this life because you in some way shape or form now of course people have bad luck and bumps in the road and all yeah that, yeah definitely there's not it, it's it not starts always. with that thought like well um, i think i want to do this all right i'm going to mm. do this and then they're like well there's an opportunity i'm going to try to do that, that yeah yeah you know, exactly so, so. well having a i talk about having a dream a lot of people that enter the wine industry have a dream and mm. they have that same vision probably but um the reason i did it my way and was successful was because i was hard-nosed and hard-working and pragmatic and yeah whereas a lot of guys with lots of money they didn't. They weren't as hungry as they needed to be, and the money just disappeared. I, I agree. And then it just a lot of watching TV at night. And, well, know. not so much that, but you know, they 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 were investing. They were throwing money at a problem, probably, mm. which is not what you want to do. No. Well, it's good because I don't have any money to. Yeah, well, neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. We're like uh, we had a really good time too, which is, you know, again, we we visualized it, we saw it. And yeah, we did yeah, it. made it happen. Especially, especially yeah, the second time. <laughs> All right, man. Cheers. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Chris. Great to talk to you. you made that very easy on me. Uh, that was a lot of fun. And I'm glad we did it. We finally did it. Uh, we had a couple miss. Missed opportunities there over the last few months, but uh, I'm glad we sat down to do that. So you guys can check out uh, Beach House Wines. They have a great tasting room in Tijuana, Hawks Bay. Uh, probably one of the more unique tasting rooms. Uh, sort of, I think Chris mentioned it during the podcast, a little bit of a kind of bungalow style. Uh, all the wines there, that's probably your best bet. But also you can go to beachhouse.co.nz. And, uh, yeah, check out the full range there. Lots of award-winning wines. And uh, thank you again, Chris. Next week, we will have Peter Cowley on from Tomato, which I'm very excited. I think that might be it for the season. Just three quick episodes, but three very solid episodes. So stay tuned for that. And, uh, yeah, again, check out decibelwines.com. Use the promo code DBPODCAST. And uh, we'll catch you guys soon. Cheers. Cheers.